As a review, we're studying the book of Revelation, and, uh, and as I've told you lots of times, that chapter 1 uh, comes with a special promise that no other book offers. And I, I say this because I want it to become just automatic. So, what's special about the book of Revelation? Hey, it's got a special blessing. And so that you'll find that in chapter 1. Oh yeah, by the way, there's an outline in chapter 1. It's in verse 19. So, yeah, that's why I do it over and over. I'm a school teacher, right? So... Um, so blessed is he who keeps and hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written into it, for the time is near. Uh, we'd like to claim this tonight. Absolutely. Uh, the book has its own outline in, chapters, in chapter 1, verses 19, where it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, write the things which are. That's those chapters 2 and 3 when we went through the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the things which shall be hereafter, and that's what follows chapter 4, and we're in chapter 5 tonight, and uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. A couple of weeks ago, when we were in chapter 4, remember that uh, John was invited into the throne room of God, so he was taken up into heaven, and we read about Jesus opening the door. What did he say? He said, come hither. I love that. Come hither. Get up here. And uh, so John tried his best to describe what he saw and heard. You know, he's using his vocabulary with what he was seeing, and Man, we, you know, we saw all kinds of bizarro stuff. We saw 24 thrones. We saw 24 elders. Uh, he described the creatures that had four faces and six wings and they were full of eyes. And, and, and then he talked about the elders casting their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And, and so that's where we're going back tonight. Tonight, we're going to read about the ultimate close of escrow. All right? For those of you who purchase a house, and you know, when you spend those three days signing 796 documents, okay, this is kind of what it's like. We're, we're closing escrow here. Um, another reason we need to circle the wagons tonight is for um, Sandy. She's had some more issues with her heart, and so uh, we want to lift her uh, to the Lord tonight tonight. Uh, as a, as a body. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thanks so much again for this evening as we gather together in your name. Lord, we, we do wait expectantly to hear from you. And uh, we, we definitely need to hear from you. So please lead us and guide us tonight and, and this week and through our tra- transition time with the church. And Lord, that uh, tonight you would make your, your word come alive to us and help us to see what John experienced and what he was describing and, and truly what was what was happening in, in the description, but will be happening in heaven uh, soon, Father. So, Lord, we, we just can't wait. And, Lord, we want to lift Sandy to you right now. We just ask that um, you would touch her, that you would uh, circle your arms around her, Father, that you would heal her, that you would clear up anything that uh, is going on in that heart, that you would uh, reassure her, that you would love on her, that you would give the doctors and the nurses and the hospital staff uh, wisdom and knowledge, uh, all that they need to do, all that they can do. So, Lord, we just lift her to you and we set her on your lap, Father. We just ask that you would love on her right now. We lift this evening and Sandy to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. Revelation chapter 5. And John writes and he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll 
written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out all into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll, the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Verse 14, Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And Daryl too. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Ah, isn't that amazing? Just, just picture what's going on here. So in chapter 5, John continues this vision of the throne room. In chapter 4, the focus was the thrones, the elders, the one who sat on the throne. This time, the focus is a scroll. Okay? And this scroll contains the prophecies of the events that are going to be unfolding throughout the book of Revelation from here on out, verses, uh, chapters 6 through 19. So let's jump in. Uh, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, your Bible may call this scroll a book. Okay? But, um, books were scrolls prior to the 2nd century A.D., a book with picture, or pages, like your Bible, how it's bound with pages, is, is called a codex. And a, a, a codex you know, has a cover and it's pages, and, and that's the way it's printed. But back then, a sealed scroll uh, was a little different. Um, a sealed scroll, uh, for, in this case, because it was um, sealed, it, it suggested a title deed. Okay? So it was a very important document. Um, if this scroll is similar to others of John's day, it was made uh, of 8 by 10 uh, inch sheets of paper of papyrus. Now, papyrus kind of looks like this, and it grows long. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a water plant, so it lives along the water, um, otherwise known as bulrushes. You might have heard of it called that, but they get pretty big. Um, the stems on these things can be as, as thick as your wrist. 
and uh, they, they grow 15 feet high, and they'll be six feet underwater. So kind of like an iceberg, not everything above the water is what, is, is what it's made out of. And so the, the pith, P-I-T-H, was the soft uh, material that's inside the plant. And that, um, that material was extracted and then cut into thin strips and then laid out vertical and horizontal, vertical and horizontal. And so you can kind of see um, how it produces a, a writing surface. Now, this is not your you know, typing paper, right? Um, this, is, this is pretty rough stuff. But uh, as, as we found out, uh, well, you know, think Dead Sea Scrolls. Julie took her seventh graders down to the LA Science Discovery Center today, and they got to go through the, the Dead Sea Scroll um, exhibit. And, I mean, think about it. I mean, these are thousands of years old, made of plant material. It's kind of cool. Um, and so this plant material is laid out vertically and horizontally, and then it's moistened with water and glue, and then they press it together, and they pound it out with a mallet, and, and it's smoothed out with a pumice stone, and it, it makes it as smooth as it can be. Now, there's two sides. The, the, first, the first side, the, the smooth side, is called the recto, and, and so it's, it's got the horizontal grain, and that's where the writing was normally done. And then on the back side was called the verso, and that was got the vertical sides, and so normally the back side was never used to write on. It was too rough. Okay? So just keep this in mind uh, as, uh, as, as we work through this. Now, these papers papers would be... Um, connected into a long sheet. Now, some of the books of the Bible, like Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, Philemon, they would all fit on one sheet. And so one eight and a half by 11 or eight by 10, right? And uh, uh, Romans, on the other hand, is 11 and a half feet long. Okay, so they would put it on a scroll, like with handles. And uh, Mark is 19 feet long, John 23 feet long, Matthew 30 feet long, Luke's and Act, Luke and Acts would be 32 feet apiece. And then, the book that we're reading now would be uh, 15 feet long on, on papyrus. So you kind of get an idea of, of how, that, uh, how that works. Um, here we read that the scroll was written on not only the front, but on the back. And so that gives us a clue. In Jewish history, only certain documents were found to be written on both sides and then sealed with seven seals. And one of them was a title deed to a piece of property. Okay, a title deed for a piece of property is kind of like what a pink slip is for a car. It's like if you have it and it's signed, it's yours. And so it was important that those seals were only broken if you had the ability to break them. And so initially a title deed would be written on only the smooth side and then sealed with one single seal. And when I say seal, it would um, it would be uh, like a wax seal. Okay, and so the paper would look like this. It's just kind of crisscross, and so you get the idea. One side would be rough, one side would be smooth. The smooth side would be normally was written on, and they would be rolled up. Now, this example is nice, you know, silver handles. I picture uh, uh, wooden handles and a little rougher than what we see here. This is really nice work here, but you know what? This is heaven we're talking about, all right? So, um, Initially, the title deed would only be written on the smooth side, but if the owner was unable to meet his financial obligations, then uh, he'd have to relinquish the title deed, whereupon on the back side was written the debts that would require to be able to break open those seals. And so if at any time during the next seven years he could pay off his debts, those seals could be broken and the deed was returned. So 
And that's kind of historically uh, the way it works. In Jeremiah 32, 6 through 29, we can read about an application of, of this practice. Um, in Jeremiah's time, at this point, uh, he knows that the Jews are about to go into the Babylonian captivity. It's imminent. It's right on them. And so he knows that his nation is going to be uh, in, in captivity for 70 years. And, uh, and, and, and so in, in chapter 32, verse 6, it says, Oh, let me see. I'm going to cheat. Ready? Oh, wait. 32.6. There we go. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hananamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, By my field, which is in Anilath, and for the, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. In other words, because you're a blood relative, a kinsman, uh, you have the first right to buy this field. And the Lord wanted him to buy it. So that's what he tells him. The word of the Lord came to me saying, this person's going to come to you and offer to sell you this field and you have first right. First right of refusal kind of thing. And uh, so, um, <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that... Oh, well, I'm sorry. Um in verse 8, then it says, And then Hananiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anilath, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So exactly what, what Jeremiah was told happened. And so he just knew. He says, Wow, you know, why should I buy this field when I'm not going to outlive the captivity? But wait, <laughs> the Lord told him to. Okay, so that's what he does. In verse 9, so I bought the field from Hanamile. That's where we're at here. The son of my uncle who was in Anilath and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of all the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So he went through all the legal hoops to make sure that in 70 years, this land would be in the family, so to speak. So verse 13, then I charged Baruch saying uh, before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. And so he's telling him, he says, Take this document, put it into a clay pot, preserve it, bury it. And you know what? This was God's way of reminding them that, you know what? There's going to be a remnant. After 70 years, there's going to be a reason for this clay pot to be here. And so they're going into captivity for 70 years, but they come back as a nation 70 years later. And when they did, somebody would find the clay pot, they'd open it up, they'd pull out these sealed documents, and if they could comply with what was written on it, they would be able to take title of that land. And so this is a model of what we're going to read next um, here in verse 2. John says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So this strong angel is, is 
absolutely powerful. He's an important angel. Uh, my guess is that he's Gabriel or Michael. Well, those are the only two angels named, so I'm good. Gabriel or Michael. But we do know that he's loud. Okay, Everything that we've read so far, heaven's a loud place to this point. So there's a scroll in the right hand of God and it's sealed. And I believe that scroll is the title deed to the planet Earth. And uh, Adam forfeited it when, uh, when, he, when he sinned. And uh, the title was originally given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And when God told him to subdue the earth in Genesis 1.28. But Adam blew it and he ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. And the title was transferred to Satan and then purchased by Jesus. And he's going to take title of that which what he purchased. Alrighty? And, you know, that explains why Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. I always heard that. And it's like, wow, that's kind of weird. Where does that come from? John 12:31 reads, Jesus is saying, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. Alrighty? So it, it's kind of he's in charge, kind of. Back to Revelation 5.3. Then John writes, And no one in heaven or under the earth or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. I like the way the King James reads. It says, No man in heaven or on the earth. It had to be a man. It had to be a kinsman. And the angel looked everywhere and they couldn't find anybody. So verse four, so John said, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So when no one comes forward to reclaim earth's title deed, something happens that probably has never happened in heaven before. Tears begin to flow. John is crying. The Greek here says that John sobbed convulsively. All right. We don't really understand what's going on here, but John did. And this was the worst tragedy that he can imagine. No man could be found worthy. No man was worthy to take the scroll. John is overcome when he realizes that the earth is going to remain in Satan's grasp forever. So what does it take to be worthy? Who would be worthy? What are the requirements of worthiness? God gives us an illustration of what's going on here in the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is a beautiful four-chapter short story that tells us how Ruth, uh, a Moabite widow, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, with Naomi's assistance, she married an older kinsman, Boaz. And uh, when she did this, it preserved her deceased husband's posterity and also becomes an ancestor of King David. So it really fills in a lot of the puzzle pieces. Remember, the kinsman just means blood relative. And so in this story, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, or the Jewish term is is what we call goel. I'm so far behind. And so um, a goel is the the kinsman redeemer. And, uh, And so Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, and he's the hero by this act of redemption that, that he has. Naomi gets her land back, and she's a type of Israel. By the law of a Leverite marriage, um, he takes a Gentile bride, and Ruth becomes a type of the church. And so it's kind of cool the way this is, a, is, a, is a, um, it's an image of what's going on here. Our kinsman redeemer is Jesus Christ. He's our goel. And in order to be that goel, you had to have four things, four requirements. 
Jesus is our kinsman redeemer and he's our go-well. In order to be a go-well, you had to do four things. Number one, you had to be a kinsman. And in this case, Boaz was a kinsman of Naomi and Jesus had to be a kinsman of Adam. Unless he was a kinsman, he couldn't redeem. It couldn't happen. Second, he had to be able to do it. Boaz was able to purchase the land. Jesus was able, which in this case meant he had to be sinless to be our Goel. Number three, he had to be willing. It still had to be a choice. And Boaz didn't have to take Ruth. He chose to. And Jesus didn't have to take us. He chose to. And the fourth thing is you had to be able to assume all the obligations of the beneficiary. Okay, Boaz, check. Jesus, check. We're good. So all four of these conditions were fulfilled for Boaz, by Boaz, for Ruth. And Jesus fulfills all of these four conditions for us. He is our kinsman redeemer. Back to Revelation 5, 5. John says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's flash back to the spring of AD 12. The Romans had issued a a decree declaring that the Jewish people would no longer be able to carry out capital punishment. And the rabbi's response to this was that uh, they thought that, you know, they were denied a fundamental right, and at this point they were powerless. Um, The rabbi's response was immediate because they believed that this capital punishment was the cornerstone of their government, you know, the stoning thing. And uh, so when this happened, the rabbis rushed into the streets of Jerusalem and they were tearing their clothes and they were just mourning. And And in fact, we're told the whole city was filled with the wailing of rabbis who understood that something very bad had happened. It seemed that the scepter had departed. They had no more power. The authority was gone. Yet Messiah had not come, or so they thought. For on that very day, guess who was sitting in the temple in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old, confounding the scribes and thinkers of the day? Yeah, Jesus. On that day, he was there, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. He was there. He was in the midst, and they just didn't know it. You know, that's kind of the way the Lord works for us. You know, we're whining and moaning and carrying on about things that are going on. Where are you, Lord? I've got this going and this going. And and you know what? He's right in our midst. He's just in our midst working things out perfectly. You know, if you walk through them long, you, you find very quickly that he's very trustworthy. And you can base your life on that. Let's continue in Revelation 5, 5. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, Jesus was born of the house and lineage of David, but because he preceded David in eternity, he's the root of David as well as a branch of David. Think of a family tree, right? And he's the root of David, and then he's a branch of David. If you think through that, your brain will start to melt. Okay? So, but it's pretty wild. The elder's speaking to John and he's saying, you know what, don't, don't worry, this won't go on forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And I'm thinking at that point, you know, John's expecting to turn and see in this huge roaring lion. But that's not what happens. Verse 6, 
And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Now, the Greek word translated lamb is the pet lamb version. You know, Mary had one. And, and so this is just a diminutive, a very tiny lamb, pet lamb. And then John continues, it stood a lamb as though it had been slain. A lamb as though it had been slain. A couple Sundays ago, Dan was teaching from the passage at the end of Luke 24. Started with verse 13. He says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And so, and so I'm going to catch up. And so, um, so, you know, a couple guys are walking down the road and they're chatting about what had happened to Jesus and Jesus shows right up in their midst and they didn't recognize him. Scripture says, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Why wouldn't they recognize him? They've been watching him. They've been listening to him. Why wouldn't they recognize him? Well, because John says, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. I believe that the men chatting with Jesus on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him because of how he looked due to the beating that he took and the torture of the cross. Isaiah 52.14 reads, his visage, So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Here Isaiah tells us that that they beat our Lord so badly that he was bloodied and battered and that he barely even looked human. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he had his back beaten, he had his side pierced, his wrists nailed, his beard plucked out. Not even taking into account the stress that... that was caused by him knowing and thinking about being separated from his heavenly Father for the first time ever. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had blood vessels burst in his face and he sweat drops of of blood. I believe that when we see Jesus, we'll be even more awed, amazed and broken than what we are now by what he did for us for us to get to heaven. And this is the mental picture that I have of Jesus as I worship in song. The picture of Jesus as a lamb, as it had been slain, it should change the way we worship family. That's how we should see him. Deep breath. John continues having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. So even though the marks of his sacrifice are evident, the lamb's not a, presented as, a, as an object of pity. All right? He also bears the marks of perfect power and perfect insight. Throughout the scriptures, eyes suggest knowledge and wisdom and horns suggest power. And this lamb has knowledge, wisdom, and power fulfilled perfectly. 
He also had the fullness of God's Spirit. We read about that as, as the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No created being was found worthy to take the scroll, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the slain Lamb, he's the only one worthy. So he can walk up to the Father and take the scroll because he is worthy. Verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. When the Lamb takes the scroll, the response is immediate. As soon as he does that, these high-ranking angels and the 24 elders, they join together in worship of the Lamb. It says that uh, each has a harp. Now, the harp is, you know, could be termed like a zithern. Um, I like to think that it's a Stratocaster, you know. But... <laughs> But, you know, it, 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 whatever it is, um, we just know that in worship and in, in heaven is going to be accompanied by music. And, and, of course, you know, this is the passage that starts the whole idea that we'll have harps in heaven. And, and we'll have harps in heaven. And, and, but you know what they play in, in H-E double hockey sticks? Can you read that? <laughs> Those of you who can read it says... Here's welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. And the down here says welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Actually, scripture only speaks of harps and trumpets in heaven. So I'm thinking there'll be jazz in heaven. <laughs> John continues, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And in this we see how precious the prayers of the saints are to God. He regards them as a sweet-smelling incense. He loves to hear us. Um, the connection between prayer and incense is shown in Psalm 141, 2. And I don't know where I'm at, but that's okay. Um, it says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so... Incense to the Lord has a, has a pleasing aroma. Incense ascends to heaven, but it needs fire before it ha- is of any use. It has to be burning, like us. David Hawking writes and says, It is also possible that these prayers represent the long-standing prayer of God's, uh, God's people in the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come, you know, as, you, as you pray that. And it's like, I, I, I don't know, sometimes I picture our, our prayers, our future prayers, when we pray for things of, that, are, that are coming in the future, that it goes into his inbox, you know, God's inbox. And, and, he, and he deals with those as, as it comes time. Verse 9, and John continues, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Hey, there it is. Who's the only people that can say out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and we have been redeemed by the blood? Who can say that? Only the church. Only the church, us. tells me that uh, church is in heaven in chapter 5 before the tribulation begins in chapter 6. And I love how the elders are singing us. 
okay, have redeemed us and have made us kings and priests to our God. And I love how they sing we, you know, and we shall reign on the earth. Um, just amazing. Verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God. There are only three groups that are kings and priests. You know, from a Jewish perspective, this doesn't make any sense because kings came from one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Uh, priests came from another tribe, the tribe of Levites, and never the two shall meet except in three cases. Melchizedek, and that will come up later on, Jesus Christ, and us, the church. We are kings and priests. And that will be important later on. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is true praise. This is true worship. And this happens when those in heaven see the slain lamb. Um, this happens here on earth too. And, and anyone who truly sees the slain lamb can't help but worship. I've heard people say, oh, I don't like the singing part in, in church. And I said, well, then you won't like heaven. Okay. How many possessions are described here? What's always the answer for a number question? Seven. seven. Of course, Seven. Okay, seven heavenly possessions that Jesus has. Number one, power. He is able. Riches. Okay, there's no claim on him which he cannot satisfy. No promise that he cannot carry out. Wisdom. Okay, both secrets and practical knowledge. Strength, which can even disarm the powers of evil and overthrow Satan. Honor, before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord indeed. Glory, which is his alone. And then blessing. And inevitably, this is the climax of it all, and he pours it all back on us. The whole idea of this type of worship, I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I've only had one thing, one experience that could kind of reflect that. In 1995, a group of men from my church went down to what was called Promise Keepers. And those of you who remember, Promise Keepers was a movement of, of a men's movement through the 90s led by uh, Bill McCarthy, a uh, football coach at Colorado. And he, you know, he told men, you know, this is how to be men and, and this is what Scripture says about being a father, a husband, a dad, and, and, and a man of the Lord. And so we went and we learned so much and it was a, like a, a day and a half. And we were down at the L.A. Coliseum and we went down early so that we could get good seats. And we got great seats. We were on the 50-yard line on the ground floor. And if you've ever been to the Coliseum, it holds 100,000 men. 100,000 men. And I can still feel it, how just amazing being surrounded by a hundred thousand men singing one of my favorite songs. It's called I See the Lord by Chris Falson. And the lyrics go like this. He says, I see the Lord seated on the throne exalted and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And it's just, I just, 
uh, it was amazing, just absolutely amazing. I'll never forget it. And then John writes, every creature which is in heaven. No, wait, creature which is in heaven. So that always brings up the question, is Spencer going to be in heaven? Right? Right? I don't know. I do know that when Jesus comes back, he's riding a horse. Okay? Um, and so what other creatures are in heaven? So, you know, it, it, it begs the question. And, and so as I dug into it, 11.6 talks about um, Isaiah 11.6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead, lead them. So it sounds to me like there's pets in heaven, right? Babies leading a wolf. I don't know, okay? I, 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 think, I think there's pets in heaven, just not the ones we're used to, all right? Um, Isaiah 11, 7 through 9, it says, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lions shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. So things aren't going to be like they are now. You know, I think that God knows how much we love our pets and how much they mean to us. And that even though the Bible doesn't directly address whether our pets were going to be with us in heaven, we do know that God loves us and wants us to be happy. And uh, the Bible says that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly in Psalms 84:11. So I think that we can trust God that heaven is going to be a place filled with everything necessary for happiness. I just hope it includes Spencer. That's right. (laughs) Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. Once again, Amen simply means Yes, and yes, and amen. And in this case, it meant yes, right? And so the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Because the Lamb had taken control of the scroll, the title deed to the earth, worship abounds. Because he was able to take the scroll from the Father's hand, worship abounds. Because he was worthy, because he fulfilled what was required, worship abounds. In chapters 1 through 3, 24 titles were used to describe Jesus. Remember, as we are going through chapters 2 and 3, uh, seven letters to seven churches, Jesus used particular uh, descriptions of himself. And, and all of those were uh, you know, uh, descriptions that the church would relate to, things that they would understand. But from now on, we're going to see Jewish titles because church is in heaven. And so from now on, from, from uh, chapter 6 all the way to 19. We're going to be speaking uh, or from looking from a Jewish perspective. So keep that in mind. All of the earth's history is now moving towards a climax, and the key to it is the, nation, is the nation Israel. Did you know that Pilate, who was a personal representative of the ruler of the known world at the time, gave Jesus a title? Did you know that? You, you've read it. John 19, 19 through 22, it reads, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. Remember the sign that you see on the top of the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
In verse 20, then many of the Jews read this title for the place was where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. What's impressive here is that Pilate wrote in three different languages. It's kind of cool. What's he doing here in Hebrew is really kind of funny. You know, he had the town just going nice and smooth and, 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 and the Pharisees kept bringing Jesus back to him and really throwing a curve at his day, you know? He's like, I have to keep dealing with this and dealing with this. And so, in verse 21, he says, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. They wanted it to be rephrased just slightly. And in English, we miss the point. In verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, I'm not changing a thing. Because this is what he was doing. If you read this, this is what was on the plaque above Jesus. And it says, Yahshua Hanazare. Remember, we're going from right to left. And the Melach HaYehudim. How's that Hebrew? I, I have no idea. But basically it means Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now what we miss in English is, that, is, is the acrostic that Jews saw when they saw this sign. When they looked in the Hebrew, they see an acrostic. Now an acrostic is the first letter of a word producing a pattern or a word sometimes. Um, Psalm 119 is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. And so as you read through that, the first letter of the first word is, is in, in order in terms of the, the alphabet. And so if you look at the acrostic that Pilate wrote, Pilate not only gives Jesus the title King of the Jews, but if you take the first letter of those first four words, you spell Yahweh or Jehovah, however you like to unpronounce, however you like to pronounce the unpronounceable name of God. Basically, he was labeling the cross, Jesus, as God. Now, I don't know if Pilate believed that Jesus was who he said he was, um, but I don't think uh, he did that accidentally. I think he knew that he was jabbing the Pharisees. Hey, take this, right? Um, I don't think that Pilate was surprised when they find the tomb empty on that Sunday morning. You could almost hear it in his voice in the scriptures when he tells the, the soldiers, hey, go make it as sure as you can, right? In the back of his mind, he's thinking, I really don't think there's anything you can do to ensure that Jesus is there in the morning, right? But uh, I don't believe that he was surprised when Christ rose from the dead to be our king and our savior. At the beginning of chapter 3, we said that four things were out of place. Not anymore. Okay? Only three out of the four are out of place because now the church is in heaven. The nation Israel, which should be in the land promised to her, it will be. The devil who ought to be in the lake of fire, he will be. And Jesus, who's to be on his own throne, he will be. So from here on out, the fireworks begin. Chapters 6 through 19 are a, a detailing of traumatic events that uh, uh, we call the tribulation. And so that's what we have to uh, look forward to, not us. So tonight my challenge for you is as you worship Jesus, our King, starting tonight, picture Jesus as a lamb as though it had been slain. Picture him in the midst of the elders and the four living creatures 
picture him as he is and recognize what it cost him so that we could be there in heaven with him. Tonight, if you don't have assurance of eternal life and you don't know for sure that you're going to be in the heavenlies that we visited again tonight, um, I would love to make those introductions so that you can receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Come and, come and chat with me after, after service. Let's pray. Father God, we do love you. And we thank you for the promises of your words in terms of eternity. We just can't wait. We continue to ask that you would show us great and mighty things that you would have us do as a church body, that you would like to do here and now. We lift Sandy to you right now, Father, that you would touch her, you would heal her, that you would comfort her, you with the family, you with the doctors and nurses. We just love you and we trust you. You are so trustworthy. You are so amazing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.